0: A number of years ago, I was on my way from Bombay, India, to Calcutta, India, and then up to northeast India to a city called Shillong, which I'll be actually visiting uh, this coming August. And the flight from Bombay to Calcutta is over northern India, and you, you actually cross over Nepal. And... I typically don't like window seats. Um, I just happened to get placed at the window seat at this time, and I was, ju- I was on the perfect side of the plane. I was on, um, if you're looking from the back of the plane to the front, I was on the left side of the plane on the window seat, heading west to east, and as we're flying along, the pilot says, if you just look out your window to the left, you will see Mount Everest. And, I mean, how cool is that? Now, Benny Phillips, who was traveling with me on this India trip, is sitting next to me. And so I'm looking at the window, and Benny's just grabbing me by the shoulders, trying to pull me away. Because he wants to see Mount Everest. Uh, He never did see Mount Everest. (laughs) My face is plastered at the window. How often do you get to see Mount Everest? I mean, it's 29,000 feet. It's the highest peak in the world. That's the Himalayas. And I I want you to know, that experience has remained with me. And I'm hoping when we fly from Bombay to Calcutta, and actually Benny's going with me in August, we do fly by Mount Everest again. And I'm going to try and do the same thing to Benny (laughs) as I did last time. (laughs) He can look in a picture book to see Mount Everest. The passage we're studying today, in many respects is the Mount Everest of the Bible. It is, it is the peak of the Bible. Specifically, one section of, of this passage. We have been in Ephesians 1, which has been a treasure chest of Christian doctrine, Christian teaching, and its treasures, as Paul elaborates, are innumerable, immeasurable They reflect on God's richness, on His love, on His grace, on His mercies, on all the blessings we've received in Christ. And only once in 23 verses in chapter 1 does Paul even allude to sin and to mankind's condition. Only once. The entire chapter really is about the richness and the greatness of of God and all that He has done for us and our response in praise to Him. Simply put, Paul begins this letter on a very positive note. And because we are in Christ, because we're God's chosen, we're God's children, we've received God's blessings, we've been given immeasurable grace, we live daily in the presence of God through His Spirit, and God has a plan for His church that was created before the world began. Paul elaborates on all these things. And the central theme of this letter is in this first chapter, in verse 10, which is God's plan to unite all things in Christ, things on heaven and things on earth. That God has a perfect plan for when time ends, when Christ returns. And And that plan is to unite all things in Christ. It simply means God is going to restore everything that was ruined when Adam sinned. God is going to restore everything that was ruined when Adam sinned. But as positive as this first chapter is, there is still the darkness of sin that lurks in the background. When Adam fell, everything in the world became divided, became broken. And at his fall, all that was good about us and our world, it all became bad. Paul tells us in chapter one that God's purpose is to once again bring everything both in heaven and on earth, back together in Christ, and to once again make it all good. They'll be united in perfect harmony. This is what we all long for as Christians. We're made to inhabit eternity, knowing that there is something better than a world awash in sin. It will be the opposite of everything we've experienced in this life. A new kingdom when there's no more division. There's no more conflict. There's no more pain. There's no more sickness. There's no more suffering. There's no more darkness. There's no more sin. But that day is not here. Not yet. It'll come. That's what Paul tells us. And God is patiently working out his plan through his church, through us, to that day when we will all be united. So Paul describes all of this in chapter 1, but then he moves on to chapter 2. And we move from this positive, wonderful light of the gospel to the reality of the darkness in all of humanity. Read chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 with me. And you were dead in the trespasses of mankind, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us up with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that... that we should walk in them. Father, thank you. Thank you for speaking truth to us this morning. Your word is truth. And Lord, we want to understand your word this morning. We do plead for illumination to understand what you're saying. Lord, to encounter you through what you're speaking. Lord, may every person here have ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to receive the word of the Lord. Father, help me. Help me to instruct and to strengthen and to encourage these dear people. Help me to love these men and women through the preaching of your word. Even in my weakness, Lord, I trust that you are strong. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's my proposition. Ruined by sin, restored by Christ, so his immeasurable grace might be displayed in us. His workmanship to unite all things once again, ruined by sin, restored by Christ. And those are my main points. Look at verse one of chapter two. And you and you utterly ruined by sin. Sin enters the world through Adam. And you sin enters the world through Adam, but it doesn't stop with Adam. And Paul says, and you. Everybody. Everybody. And Paul reiterates this theme throughout the passage. In verse 1, he says, and you. In verse 3, he says, we all. In verse 3 later, he says, like the rest of mankind. And you, we all, like the rest of mankind. Sin entered the world through Adam. And we were a part of that. And we were dead in our sins, in our transgressions. Sin entered the world through Adam, and we must have a clear understanding of the Bible's teaching on sin. Sin is the antithesis of everything that God is, which is a perfect description of who we are. We are the antithesis of everything that God is. Where God is good, we are evil. Where God is righteous, we are unrighteous. Where God is pure, we are impure. Where God is holy, we are filthy. We are the antithesis of who God is. And in these verses, Paul summarizes the biblical teaching about sin. And he says four things about sin. First of all, he says, and you, everyone, were dead. Our trespasses, which means a, a falling away, a pulling away from God, and our sins, our, our polluted heart, we were, we were dead. We were the walking dead. Some, some popular TV show now, I take it, The Walking Dead. I've never seen it. Anybody ever seen the TV show The Walking Dead? Some are shaking their head. Yeah, some of my kids watch it. I don't get it. What, what is it about zombies that are appealing? Um, yeah, I, 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 it just freaks me out. Um, physically alive, but spiritually dead. Now, I don't know how to dramatically... Declare this in such a way that you get dead, that you understand death. A number of years ago, I had the wonderful privilege. Uh, a man, this was in Atlanta, I was living in Atlanta time, we were pastoring the church there, and this, this gentleman called, and a friend had invited him to church on a Sunday, and he'd come, and he left, and I, I hadn't seen him for a number of weeks, and he he calls me one day at the church office and he just says, can we talk? And so I said, sure. So we got together and he, had, he and his girlfriend were living together and they had had this big fight and were broke, had broken up and, and they, they, he, wanted, he didn't want to lose the relationship so he, uh, he wanted me to help him because I could, I could show him from the Bible how to help his relationship. So I did, I shared the gospel with him because I just said, look, I can give you biblical principles of marriage and they'll actually help you even if you're not a Christian. But if you're a believer, the blessings that God promises in Scripture, and, and let me show you, but, but here's your problem. Here's why you're having problems. You're a sinner. And I shared the gospel with him. And he got saved, which was just amazing. And so he goes home, and, and about a week later, I get a call from his girlfriend. What'd you do to, what'd you do to my boyfriend? And she, I said, well, how about we get together? So Her boyfriend and I got together for dinner, and I shared the gospel with her. And she got saved right at the dinner table. It was just a Cherokee cattle company, I still remember it, over a steak. She got saved. She's just weeping at the dinner table. And so then a, a number of months later, I had an opportunity to marry them. And so it was just one of those wonderful experiences to see God work. Well, this guy had an unusual career. He worked at a funeral home. And he was so excited about being a part of the church and so excited about our friendship. He wanted to show me where he works. So he invites me to lunch one day. He says, listen, come to the funeral home so I can show you around. <laughs> How about we just meet somewhere for lunch? No, 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 no. You've got to come. I really want to show you around. So I go to the funeral home and he, he, he's showing me around and he gets a, he gets a, Paged back then, they didn't have cell phones, they had pagers, and so uh, pagers were little boxes that people had and they vibrated. And um, just for the younger generation, the older guys know what I'm talking about. And, and we actually had phones in my home with cords on them, you know. <laughs> Do you know what they are? And, and, and when I was a kid, we dialed them. <laughs> yeah, some people actually know. Norris, like, yeah, I still have one. We dial it, so he goes off. And he, he leaves me in this room called the casket room. And the casket room is just all the different caskets that people come in and they look at to decide where they want to stick their loved one. And so I'm just kind of wandering around the room looking at the different caskets, you know, looking in them and, you know, seeing, seeing what they look like and thinking, you know, and you just get that creepy Feeling. And so I wandered off into one of the little side rooms because there were more caskets. And, and I look and, and there's, a, there's one with a body in it. And I thought, oh, cool. They have a, a demonstration of what a body is. And so I go up to it and I kind of tweak its nose. It, 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 it wasn't a model. <laughs> oh, I was so freaked out. <laughs> she was dead. she was totally dead not not from prince's bride where they're mostly dead she was totally dead that is us she was not leaving that casket there was no life in her eyes there was no hope She was dead. And Paul makes it clear. That is who we were. That was our spiritual state before God. Yes, we were physically alive, but we were dead. our, Our spiritual life was in a casket. Completely, totally dead. That's who we were. And Paul makes that clear because he's leading up to something. He wants you to know you are not almost dead, you are totally dead, which means, which is the wonderful positioning for Paul to begin talking later on about the sovereignty of God in salvation. Because it's not as though there was just enough of you. To, like, the, the lady in the casket didn't wink at me. She, don't have to, she didn't have just one eyeball working, you know. Just to, almost dead, but just one eye working. No, no, she was totally dead. And so were you spiritually. And the sovereignty of God, that's where we have this wonderful doctrine of election that God chose us. Why did he choose us? We don't know why he chose us, but he chose us, he elected us, and we had nothing to do with it. Because we were dead, we couldn't respond in any way. Something had to happen. We had to be made alive. And so Paul begins by saying, And you, and you, and you, and you were dead. And then he goes on and he says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins. You died. You were dead because of who you were and what you do. The sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit now, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We followed the course of this world. We were dead to sin simply because we were disobedient and we were following our father, the devil. We were children of the devil, is what Scripture says. We were dead, we were disobedient. We followed the world. We loved its values. We liked its values. We wanted to dress its values. We wanted to demonstrate its values, display its values. We loved the world. We loved the things of the world. We loved the things that were opposite of what God loved. Whatever it was that, that looked of God, we wanted to be the opposite. We wanted to embrace those things it's who they were. That's not who they are today. Paul's making it clear. This is, this is who you once were. It's not who you are today. It's who you once were. But, but help, let me help you understand, Paul says. Here's this wonderful chapter one. We've talked about all that God has done. But let me tell you why God had to do it. You were dead. And you followed the course of this world. You were a son of disobedience. Not only were you a son of disobedience, you were a child of evil. You were a child of wickedness. Are you getting the picture? You don't look good. You don't look good. Following the course of this world. Now, just on a side note, as Christians, you know what? It's possible for us to follow the course of the world even today. It's still possible. And it's why it is so important, as Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Above all else, guard your heart. It is the wellspring of life. The world, the world still has a pull. It still has an appeal. It still has... A power to draw us close to itself. It's why John speaks about worldliness in his epistles. And as believers, we still have to guard against following the course of this world. And it comes in a variety of ways, and it's typically very, very subtle. I, I love and appreciate. The teaching on Christian freedom, I do. But sometimes the pendulum swings too far, and you may think, "Well, that's an old guy saying this." No, it's not an old guy saying this. Well, it is, but it's not. <laughs> I sadly think it's sw- I think it swung so far that some believers actually get offended when you challenge them on what they call freedom. Too often, the pendulum swings in the church too far towards legalism and too far towards worldliness. I understand that. And people on both extremes are typically intolerant of one another. And that is not what we want to do. And that is not where we want to go. But consider this Christian freedom is also the freedom not to do something. Christian freedom isn't always the freedom to do something, it's as well the freedom not to do something. Christians are by nature different, they're not dead anymore. You were once dead. You once walked following the course of this world. You were once following the prince of the power of the air. You were once a son of disobedience. That's who you once were. And as believers, we are called to be different. We are called to look Differently, We are called to think differently. When people look at us, do they see that difference? Now, nowadays, that difference is offensive. When I came to Christ, it was just different. Today, it's offensive. But we're called to do that anyway not be offensive for the sake of being offensive, but to be different for the sake of displaying the glorious riches of grace in our lives. And so, first, we were dead. Secondly, we were sons of disobedience. And thirdly, we, Paul says, we lived in the passions of our flesh. Verse 3, among whom we all lived. Once lived. Now, we were all living in the passions of our flesh. We were all carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We thought it. It wasn't that we just did it. We thought it. And we were by nature, not by accident. We were by nature children of wrath. Because we were sons of Adam, daughters of Adam... We have Adam's nature. And so, by nature, we were children of wrath. Now, Adam wasn't born a child of wrath. He chose to become a child of wrath. I mean, you think about it, he's the only one, the only one who ever had absolute free will. And he chose wrongly. And if it had been one of us, We'd have all done the same thing. And so, verse 3 we were living in the passions of our flesh, we were dead. In our trespasses and sins because we once walked following the course of the world. We followed the prince of the power of the air. We were disobedient. and We lived in the passions of our flesh. We carried out the desires of our body and mind. And we were by nature children of wrath. And then Paul just goes on to complete it. He says, like the rest of mankind. So do you see yourself different? Do you see yourself a little bit better? No. You're not. You're like the rest of mankind. You are not. As unique as you think you are you 're not, yeah, you wear clothing that 's different. I mean my daughter 's got more holes in her ears than <laughs> she ruined her ears, she just ruined her ears when she was a little girl, and I'd put her to bed at night. I would just her ears were so soft, and I would just kind of rub her ears and pray with her and tickle her, and, and, and she just ruined her ears. <laughs> <laughs> and I tell her that so I'm not just telling you I tell her that we're, but even as different as we look we're, we're like the rest of mankind and Paul wants us to understand and you were like you were children of wrath you were like the rest of mankind this is who you were this is who you were understand this is who you were this is how we lived we had a polluted heart we carried out the manifestations of our minds we carried out the manifestations of our flesh and we were by nature children of wrath and that's how god views us god views us god viewed us as children of wrath boy that's not very nice of god you know in the in the 1800s into the early 19th century 20th century so all throughout the from Jonathan Edwards era mid 1700s to let's say just turn of the 20th century the idea of the wrath of god was clearly understood by the church clearly understood by the church. What it was weak in was people understanding the love of God. And around the turn of the 20th century, it switched. And the church began really pioneering an understanding of the love of God, but to the exclusion of the wrath of God. And to talk about wrath today is offensive to people. How dare God be wrathful? How dare? What kind of God would punish anybody? What kind of God is that? And and I'm talking about that teaching among evangelical Christians. Or so-called evangelical Christians. But Paul says we were all under God's wrath by nature. Like the rest of mankind. And, and I know it's not a popular doctrine. And here's the problem. Because wrath is not a popular doctrine. And sin, the, the doctrine of sin is not a popular doctrine. Even some in the church don't want to tell people they're sinners. Yeah, I, don't get in my business. S- stay out of my business. No, no, no. We must be able to tell people that they need a Savior. And we have to not worry about being offensive by telling the truth. God's wrath explains the why of the Incarnation. God's wrath explains the why of the crucifixion. If you don't understand the wrath of God, there's no need for the Incarnation. If you don't understand the wrath of God, the doctrine of sin, why the wrath of God exists, we will not understand the crucifixion. It empties the cross of all its power. It empties the gospel. It makes the gospel nothing let me say this, evangelism has no meaning without the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of God's wrath. Evangelism has no meaning We must tell people, you were dead in trespasses. You are dead in trespasses and sins. You are following the course of this world. You are following the devil, the prince of the power of the air. You are a son of disobedience. You are living in your passions and desires of your body. And you are by nature a child of wrath. Brothers and sisters, that is real evangelism. Anything less is not the gospel. Anything less is not the gospel. Without these two realities, no one will understand God's judgment. You don't understand wrath. You don't understand sin. You do not understand God's judgment. And if you do not understand God's judgment, you cannot understand the gospel. It is no gospel. And without the gospel, you cannot be saved. I believe we should love people. I believe we should serve people. I believe we should extend mercy and alleviate the suffering of people that they might see the love of Christ. It's one of the reasons I travel to India and Burma. I do medical teams there. We meet with the most destitute and, and suffering of people to alleviate their suffering and their pain. But we don't stop there. We tell them of their sin. We tell them of God's wrath. We, we tell them that their Hindu gods are false gods. And that they will end up in a place called hell if they do not repent. We want them to know the truth because we want to love them. Not just through service, but through truth. We have been, Paul's point in this section, verses 1 through 3, is this. We are utterly ruined by sin. Utterly ruined. But now we get to Mount Everest. Because we've been majestically rescued by God. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, with which he loved us. You know, God could have great love and not love us. It doesn't mean he has to extend his love to us. It's not a requirement. Do you understand that? But he loved us with his great love when we were dead in our trespasses, I could have <laughs> just think I could have stood over that that casket with that woman in there, who was not the fake body, and said, I love you. You're so loved. Nothing would have happened. Not a thing. But when God loves us, That love does something. It brings life. It brings life. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive with Christ. Here's the contrast. You were dead. Even when you were dead God made us alive. And that's the first thing. God made us alive. There's a quote I want to read because... This is, Lloyd-Jones does a wonderful job of describing who God is and what God has done. Is it up? Does it go up? Do we have access to it? Make it appear. <laughs> we can be delivered out of this present evil world. And we can escape the condemnation that is one day coming upon the world. Because of the love of God, the world is doomed, destined to one day be destroyed and punished. And the devil and his forces are going to perdition and all who belong to that realm will suffer the same punishment. But the message of the gospel to men and women individually is that they need not be participators in that. You can be taken out of it, out of the kingdom of darkness, brought out from the power of Satan unto God. That is the message to individual men and women. The world will remain as it is, but you can be delivered out of it. You can be taken out of it. Not only that, we can also be introduced into and become citizens of a kingdom which is not of this world. But God, but God has done this. He has made us alive. We we are alive in Christ and we are now united to Christ. We're no longer spiritually dead. We have a spiritual life. We're alive. We no longer live in the realm of sin. We are no longer children of wrath. We now know because we are now God's children. We know God. We're, we're children of God. God is not a distant entity. We have a personal relationship with him That's what's so amazing as I travel around the world when I'm in Burma among Buddhists or when I'm in India among Hindus they have literally Hindus have over a million gods the the Buddhists have have one god but but they're all distant they're not personal they're not fathers they still remain these distant and aloof entities even among the people that worship them falsely. There's a true story of a, of a well-known actor who was very gifted at literary reading and he was at a, at a a gathering, a, a party with a group of people, and and some folks asked him to do some literary reading, and he did, and it was wonderful. And then a, an old pastor who happened to be at that at that party said, Would you read Psalm twenty three? So he could hear this this thespian, this actor, read Psalm twenty three in such a, a glorious manner. And the actor said, I will, but you need to read it also. So the actor read it and the crowd just was awed at just how, how well it was read and, and, then, and then the pastor read and he read it with a halting and a rough voice an old voice, unpolished and when he was done everybody in the room was weeping and uh, someone turns to the actor and said you know, why is that? Why are they weeping? And the actor said, because they didn't weep when you read it. And he responded by saying, well, I know the psalm. He knows the shepherd. We know the shepherd. We, we know the shepherd. We were made alive to know the shepherd. But secondly, he, he raised us up. Look at, look at verse 5 but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive with Christ by grace you have been saved in verse 6 and raised us up with him and raised us up with Christ to be raised means that we were pretty down low we were in a bottomless pit of sin and Christ raised us up and that is that is a future resurrection we look to but not only a future resurrection, we were raised up with Christ now and the the next seated in heavenly places. Do you realize right at this moment you are seated in heavenly places? Now, I know sitting on these metal chairs with those cheesy little pads may not seem like you're seated in heavenly places, but you are seated in heavenly places with Christ. Now, what does that mean to be seated in heavenly places? You've been raised up and now you've been seated with heavenly pla- in heavenly places, it means we now live in God's spiritual domain, not Satan's. That's, that's a domain of freedom, not a domain of slavery. Satan's was a domain of slavery. You were enslaved to sin. That's all you could do. That's all, why you, you followed the course of this world. That's why you followed the prince of the power of the air. It's why you followed the passions of your life. It's why you were a child of wrath because you were a slave of sin. But you've been raised up with Christ, and you've been seated with Christ in a new spiritual domain. You think differently, you act differently, your inclinations are now different. You feel guilty when you sin. Good. There's conviction in your heart. That's right. That's being seated with Christ in heavenly places. If you don't feel conviction, I say you're sitting in the wrong place. Paul says, no, no, we are, we're no longer a part of this world. We're pilgrims. We're strangers. We belong to God's kingdom. We are seated in, now it says heavenly places here, but the actual Greek is heavenlies. It's not a, a place. It's specifically, it's not a physical place. It's the heavenlies. It's a spiritual realm. It's where you live. It's where you live when you have your devotions in the morning. It's where you are when you're singing praises to God this morning. It's where you are right now as you attend to God's Word. God is with you at this very moment. You are seated with Him. That's Paul's contention. But God, for grace, by grace you've been saved, His incomparably great love and kindness and grace, you've been saved. You've been raised up You've been made alive. You've been seated in heavenly places. And because we are seated with Christ, I want you to know this morning you are eternally safe. You know that? You are eternally safe in the hands of God. Nothing can affect your future. Ruined by sin, utterly ruined by sin but majestically rescued by God for this reason. Look at verse 8. Actually, look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's the reason that you would be the display of the glory of God. He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. How does he do that? He does it in you. He does it in you. That's the reason. He does it in you. God wants to display his glory. That's why we were created. We were created to display the glory of God. What is man's chief end? You've read the Westminster Catechism. The first question, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is what? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why we were created, for this verse right here. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. By grace, you have been saved. Utterly ruined by sin, majestically rescued by Christ. All for the reason to show the immeasurably great riches of God's grace in kindness that the world might see the display of the glory of God. Now, what do we do with it? Well, I think verse, verses 9 and 10 help us. Actually, it's us so go to verse 8. For by grace, and, and here's Paul's wonderful, you are saved by the sovereignty of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not your own doing... Now, some have said, you know, is it that you're and this when when he goes and this is it? Is he talking about faith or is he talking about grace? And and actually, he's talking about both. Both. For by grace you have been saved, and this is not your own doing; it is a gift of God. What is a gift of God? Faith is a gift of God. Grace is a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But then he goes on, look, he he look at verse 10. He he flips it verse 10, we are his workmanship. So, we're nothing we do, no works by us. But works by God mean something. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, remember, you were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. And now you're learning that you were created in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world for good works. That is, Paul is referencing here, when you understand the whole book of Ephesians, he's referencing here, not just individuals, he's referencing the church. He's talking about the church being created for good works. That we are God's workmanship. We are God's... I, I, I love working with wood, and I, and I, love, I love building furniture, and, and it's, it's a fashioning, and it's, it's sanding, and it's planing, and it's drilling, and it's... I mean, it's, it's, it's a creation. I, I'm working at it, and that's what God is doing in us. He's fashioning. He's forming. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus, for good works, and here's the, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. They're already prepared for you, for us as Grace Church, that we would walk in them. Many of the Christian Christian believers in Ephesus experienced salvation years earlier. Paul's not talking to them, not showing them how to be saved, but how they are saved, what they are saved to, to good works. To convince them that the same power that saved them is the same power that is going to keep them and strengthen them for good works. God's plan is to unite all things in heaven and earth. And the integral and integral to that plan is the church. It's why Grace Church exists. Where is workmanship? If you just stood back over the last eight months and you watched God's workmanship in forming Grace Church, in pulling all the pieces together, in putting in my heart more than a year ago the desire to come to Montgomery County and snow, the desire in your heart to be a part of a sovereign grace church, the, the fashioning of putting the people with specific gifting in places, to have a Jim Cowan doing sound, to have a Nora Earls doing the administration for the church, to have a Craig Parker handling children's ministry. I mean, you just see how God's workmanship has come together to fashion grace church. It's why we're here. Lloyd-Jones says this, and I'll end with this. I need one of those. Ah. This is Christianity. This is the meaning of church membership. This is what it is to be a Christian. Nothing less than this. Here we are taken right out of our little subjective states and moods and feelings and passing conditions and we, are, we see ourselves suddenly in this great plan of eternity which God brought into being and into opera- operation as a result of the fall of man into sin. Do you understand that? God had a plan. Before men fell into sin, God had a plan. And Paul says it right here, we are his workmanship. And that plan is to unite all things that one day, all things, everything that was ruined at the fall will be restored when Christ returns. And until that time, God is working through us with the works that he prepared beforehand that he might show the immeasurable greatness of his glory to a world that needs to hear the gospel.